translation, it's so true. Lord, whether it's written in an Arabic Bible in Egypt, studying with our brothers and sisters over there, or here in our English Bible, we know it is your word. We're confident of it. And we know we can trust it. It does not change. It is sufficient for all things. It's profitable, Lord. Father, I pray that you would allow us to hear it in a profitable way today where our ears would be in tune to it. We would not check out and be consumed with our problems and things that will happen tomorrow, but capture us, Lord. Give us the ears to hear. And Lord, we thank you that you have done such miraculous things to bring about the birth of your church, and you protected it in those early years, Lord, and then you gave the church God's word in a complete manual, lacking nothing. And here we are, the 21st century, with a Bible that's completed, giving us everything we need. So, Lord, help us treasure the Word of God. Help us treasure the Lord Jesus Christ that the Word focuses on, Lord. And help us unite. Use our gifts to bring you glory, Lord. Lord, we got a race to run. We don't know how long it's going to go, Lord, but cause us to run and to run well for your glory, Lord. May this encourage us today as we look to your Word. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to jump right back into this passage. I left off in the middle of 10, so let me back up to verse 7 and bring you back up to speed. It's been a few weeks since I've been in this text. It's a challenging text. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 are pivotal to the church in Corinth, and I believe they are pivotal to the church today. In fact, if there's not a more misused passage, I don't know what it is than these passages. And so we must get them right. There's so much truth to be taught. In verse 7, we saw this. Verse 7 says, but to each one, I love that term, each one, it leaves nobody out in this room, nobody out in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so back a few weeks back, we said that the Holy Spirit gives grace gifts. That's our word. We get that idea of grace gifts from that truth there for the common good. God has gifted you, not just me, not just the elders. He's gifted every believer with a grace gift and multiple gifts in many cases for the common good of the church. This is the equipping aspect. We equip one another. We train one another. We, we, we had a great demonstration this morning of not only a worship team, but then uh, women that are working with our youngsters training them. This is all for the common good. And so there in verse 7, we centered on the, the understanding that the Spirit highlights Christ-centeredness in our spiritual gifts. Our spiritual gifts are meant to exalt Christ and to unify us together. Anything else is not of the Word of God. It's meant to bring us together. It's meant to glorify our Savior and our God who loves us so much. Then we moved into what I put into your notes there, the first point, number one there. The Holy Spirit distributes grace gifts to create unity. And we began in verse 8 and down through 11 with these nine gifts that Paul listed, and by no means are a complete list. We, we see more in Romans 12. Uh, we see more in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as the canon began to be more completed we see more of these gifts. We see teaching and exhortation and stewardship and love um, and hospitality and all these other gifts. I'll remind you of these later in the message. 
um, they start to come front and center. But as we looked at this, you remember that we said there's clearly temporal gifts in here, and there's permanent gifts. You have a church with no Bible at this time. There, there's extraordinary gifts happening to authorize these apostles that they're sent from God himself to preach to this early church. And so he's doing extraordinary things. So there's temporary gifts that will fade away with the scriptures, but then there's permanent gifts. And those permanent gifts are still being exercised by the church today. We notice that there were verbal gifts and there were nonverbal gifts. Those still exist today. Some may have the gift of exhortation or teaching or preaching or something, but some may have the gifts of help. Helping people, what a gift. Ministering to the needs, showing mercy to somebody. These are nonverbal gifts often, but, but the church is weakened without them. We see gifts that are maybe uh, exercised in importance to the ministries of the church, and then some that are maybe less. These would be lesser gifts that would fall away. They're, but the Bible says, look, the greatest of these is love. Right there, so there's certain gifts that have importance that are used to them. Now, it, it was key, and we noted this, that, that in the first century, these were amazing times. And I think that's a little bit of the problem. Uh, Christians today, like the world, are susceptible to sensational things. We're drawn to shiny things at times. We're drawn to bait that tracks you away and... and and, and that was, that's part of the problem. People look back at Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and throughout the early church where they did not have a complete canon and they're drawn to those things and want to re-resurrect those things. And yet, what it does, it says, God, we don't believe your word is sufficient. We want more. But, but, but I also think that we shouldn't neglect what happened in that first century. It was amazing. As we work our way through Acts, you see God putting on display his glory in spectacular ways. Handkerchiefs falling on people and they're, they're, they're being healed. Uh, men falling out of windows and apostles healing them. Miraculous jailbreaks and so forth. God was identifying and authorizing his apostles for this great commission he had sent them on. You may think about it, and I, and I said this, and it's something I reminded myself this week as I looked over my notes, that there was so little of the Bible by the time you get to 1 Corinthians of the New Testament. You, you, you have the book of Matthew, most likely. Galatians and James, probably. But you don't have anything else. You have no prison epistles. You have no pastoral epistles written to Timothy and Titus and you have no book of Hebrews, no Peter's epistles. You have not the rest of the Gospels. You don't have John's epistles. You don't have Revelation. None of that's there. God is speaking through his apostles, doing miraculous things to authorize them so that people will listen to them and hear the Gospel. But yet it is amazing to look at those things. And I, and I enjoy reading the book of Acts and seeing how God did phenomenal things. Now, we certainly believe God is still doing those things today. I'm, oh, my goodness, I've just been around the world and seen the church in, in Egypt and seen what God's doing in the middle of a Muslim world. Oh, my goodness, it's miraculous. But he doesn't give that authority one person. God's still doing these miraculous events. Now, the apostles were doing several things, right? They were preaching Christ from the Old Testament. 
They were receiving, in some cases, direct revelation. And the Spirit was gifting them with wisdom and knowledge to apply that gospel to the situation they were in, right? He was taking these extraordinary times and he was doing extraordinary things to highlight the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing was written down yet. And so God was showing his authority through the apostles. And I I said this a few weeks ago, but I'll say it again. We should neither be ashamed or fearful of the book of Acts, but we should not also abuse it. I think that's really a key. Sometimes uh, some of the conservative church like, well, hey, well, you know, there's some weird things going on there. We need to stay with it. No, no, no. Those are beautiful things, and you should study them and appreciate them and marvel at what God did in the book of Acts. But at the same time, they can't be abused because once you do that, and once you want to run back to those things, you reject that God has given us everything we need in this book right here. And that's very important. Otherwise, God would not have given us a completed canon. And so now we have 66 books that God has authorized. The scriptures are never in conflict with one another. There's no error in them. They're pure inspiration from God himself. They're infallible, and they proclaim God's truth perfectly. That's all you need. You let me know when you've got to the end of this book. When you let me know when you figured everything out and, and you understand this thing every which way, you let me know when you got there, okay? Because you may need my job. Because I've been studying for years, and I still are going over old passages and being amazed at what I'm learning. Isn't that glorious? Well, we started to look at some of these gifts. First, we looked at the grace gift of wisdom. Um, And wisdom was tied to that teaching and instruction. The Corinthians had claimed they had wisdom, but they were actually holding on to human wisdom. It was the apostles that were receiving divine wisdom, right? They were the mouthpiece of God. And and these gifts were evident. These men would speak phenomenal things. They would talk about their wisdom that they received. And Paul says, well, well, you know, I I don't have much. All I have is Christ. (laughs) What an amazing wisdom, right? They're talking of all their great oratorical perfections. And Paul just says, I'm just determined to know nothing but Jesus. What what a statement. (laughs) What wisdom that puts to shame those who try to come with their own wisdom. And so we see this gift of wisdom. We also saw the gift of knowledge that we see there in verse 8. And knowledge reflects the gift to take the revealed truth of God's word and apply it to the purpose in the life of the church. God took his word and granted it to these apostles and they applied it to their lives. And they helped them know and come to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the Corinthians were using human knowledge It promoted self-righteousness. That was the problem. Factions were beginning to build within this church. But the Spirit uses wisdom and knowledge to spread the Word of God to create unity, love for Christ, love for one another. And it isn't hard to study that, to realize Corinthians were coming with their own wisdom and own knowledge. That caused them to separate. The Spirit brings the wisdom of God through these men in this time, through knowledge of it, and it unified people. And when you look at a church our size, God must be doing something through his word to get this many people in one place to hear God's word. And it's because we preach the text. Whether it's me or it's one of the other elders, we preach the text. And it brings us together. And so that's what they were doing. And yes, it was phenomenal because there was direct revelation they were receiving. They're preaching Christ through the Old Testament. And, and there was amazing things that were going on. 
But God has given us a completed manual, which is nonetheless amazing. The next we come to some of the miraculous gifts. We come to the gift of faith. And God certainly granted men great faith. Peter had to be given great faith to step out of that boat, didn't he? Walk on water. God granted him in that moment faith to step out and go, I'm coming, Lord. We see this with all kinds of people throughout the early church. God gave them great measures of faith, and, and certainly that was to give authority to the teaching of God's word. But remember, we talked about that God still gives a measure of faith, Romans 8, 12 calls it. We watch people go through great trials. I've watched people in this church, and I've mentioned them here before, and I mentioned them in this sermon last time I was in the pulpit. I've watched God grant them faith to go through such a difficult thing. I've had so many people say, Scott, I don't know if I can have the faith because God hasn't given it to you. He'll give it to you when he asks you to go through that trial. He'll grant you faith to get through it. Or you can just try to muster up your own strength see how far that gets you. Or you can trust him for faith. The next gift was the gift of healing. The book of Acts contains these eyewitness accounts of the gift of healing. We mentioned some of them. There are situations that were not through medical-induced help. They were just pure healings that God did. We watch Jesus do it all the time. Bleeding women, right? Blind, deaf, dumb. He did it all, didn't he? We watched him do it. And we watched the apostles do those things as well. And the Bible reminds us that they, all that came to him, they, they healed, right? Even the apostles, they carried them on, on stretchers and they healed the sick and the diseased and the evil spirits. God was doing amazing things to spread his gospel. That's such an important thing. Not to empower people and make them look good in the early church or make them um, be, have large churches and fly jets and wear expensive suits and some. You know, that's not what he was doing. He was authorizing that so people would listen to the gospel. And it's such an important truth. We've lost that today in so much of the church. God now drives us to dependency. And I, I still see the gift of healing this way. And I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I see the gift of healing drives you and I to our knees. Have you prayed for somebody who's been sick? I mean, I, I think that's a real part of this, isn't it? We hear about you as elders and staff, and we pray. We hear about prayer requests that come in, and, and we pray. We have lists of them on Tuesdays. We pray for people. That's our gift of healing, Right? We pray for the one, the great physician, that if it is in his will, that he would heal this person. I, I think that's something we do. God does the healing. I, I can't do that. God's also given us great medical people, right? Man has been endowed with knowledge to know how to treat people. And yet he does not give or give this one person this authority and this gift anymore. Why? They don't handle it well. And it robs God of his glory. And so we certainly believe in the gift of healing, don't we? We come to a couple other gifts that I, I spent time on, and one was prophecy. Uh, prophecy is, is, I think, an amazing gift that God had given in the early church. These were men and women at times who would proclaim a truth of coming events that God was going to do. Now, think about that today. I think the gift of prophecy still is around in the fact that 
people study God's word intently, understand what the Bible has to say about what's going to happen in the future, and proclaim that truth with accuracy through a good hermeneutic. I, I said this when we were kids, we had prophecy conferences all the time, and it was someone who would come and help us understand the book of Revelations and Daniel and, and all these great truths. I think one of our BFGs working through eschatology right now, uh, Brian Gianquinto is uh, coming to mind now. Brian Gianquinto was teaching today and there. He's teaching on future events. What a gift. That's not easy to do. There's a lot of different views on things, right? And so we appreciate those who work hard to help us understand those things. Well, then finally we came to the gift of discerning spirits. Um, what a problem that was in that day, right? You have the Corinth church that is engaged or coming out of in, in many aspects, but still engaged in some of the pagan rituals that were going on. They were attending family events where festivals were demonic behavior was behind all of that. And, and so there were men and women who came along who God gifted with discernment to know what was of God and what wasn't. Now, I think that's very important even today. I think men and women exercise this gift with an astute understanding of Scripture, and, and it happens all the time. People will come to me and they say, Pastor, our son or our daughter or our friend is caught up in this, and here's what they believe. And, and, and I'll say, well, what do you think about that? And they'll say, well, the Bible says this. Wow, that's discernment. That's discerning the spirits, realizing, nah, yeah, that's not of the Spirit of God. That's of a spirit of something else, but it's not the Spirit of God. And so there's a discerning of spirits, and this was very prevalent in the early church. There was so much false thinking. Satan was doing everything in his power to stop the church, every deception he could bring. He did everything in his power to keep Christ from being the final lamb, from to getting him to fail, now he's turned his attention to get the church to fail. And I think he's still doing that in a very good way, uh, a very strong way today. Well, I left off with the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues. And I want to pick that up today just barely. Because I, I believe as I've studied ahead now that chapter 14 really focuses on the gift of tongues, the interpretation of tongues, and prophecy. And, I'm, and I've already been working on, on the road. I was working on that message already. And I'm, I'm going to do a message that's really targeted to the misunderstanding and the misuse of tongues. And, and yet I just want to touch on this just for, for a moment. There's nothing new under the sun, uh, Solomon said. And so this is a gift that has seen great abuse from the beginning of the church. And, and we know it by just simple exegesis, simple hermeneutics, simple just interpretation of the Bible. We look at the word, and the Greek word is glossa. It's, it's simple. It, it's a word for tongues. It means languages, distinguishable, understandable languages. And somehow, it's gone from that to whatever that is they do out there. It, it's, it, it just is so far from what the original word meant. Notice in verse 3, the Bible says Jesus is Lord. Is that clear? Is that a clear, audible statement coming from my mouth, from the page of Scripture, Jesus is Lord? Do you need any interpretation of that? It's pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus is Lord. He's master. He's ruler. He holds authority over all things. Now, I don't need to say some kind of crazy language to tell you that. Because it's right out of the text. 
Jesus is Lord. This is what the Spirit behind verse 3 tells us, that, that no one can say this except by the Spirit of God, right? And yet that's not the claim of today's modern tongues, is that the Spirit is giving me some other language. No, no. This is completed. Jesus is Lord. We understand that. And this is a problem today, isn't it? And it's, it's drifted many people away from the truth of God's Word. But let, but yet... And I think it's so important not to be afraid of what was going on in the early church. Go to Acts chapter 2. I think it's worth just taking a moment, as much as I, my time flees for me so quickly. I want you to look at Acts 2 with me. Because I don't want to run away from this stuff. I, I, I think it's just absolutely phenomenal what God does at the birth of the church. It's, it just blows your mind. Every time you read it, you come away and go, God, who would have thought of this? Who would have thought that you would empower a bumbling, denying Christ not very long ago fishermen to get up there and preach and everybody hears in their own language? Language. Galassa. Okay? So let's read. Chapter 2, Acts, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven like a noise, like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of a fire distributing to themselves. They rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with, here's the term, here's the correct language, with other tongues. As the Spirit had given them utterance. So here we have the work of the Spirit empowering them for an event he's about ready to do. Right? He, the Spirit of God's always done this throughout the Old Testament. He inspired. The Spirit fell upon Saul and David and others. This is, he's, he's coming upon them, resting upon them to bring about a great event. Now look what happens. Verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Get ready for a miracle here. Every nation under heaven. Verse 6. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together. This is, this is a miraculous event. It's drawing people together. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He draws people together. He doesn't divide them. And they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in their own language, in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Emilites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Paphia in Egypt and districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome and Jews and proselytes and centurions and Arabs. We, we hear in our own tongues, that's the word, speaking the mighty deeds of God and they all continued in amazement with great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? What an amazing event. This is a group of people that God has called out of the world. He's preaching the gospel to them through a miraculous event because they don't have a Bible. And think about this. Even the Old Testament was very limited to get to. It was only in the synagogues, and only those that were running the synagogues could get a hold of those manuscripts. They had very limited uh, access to the word of God, and so God does a miraculous thing. He speaks to them in their own language. And again, I'm going to deal with this in much greater length when I get to chapter 14, but 
God uses supernatural events to proclaim his truth to his elect, he always has done that. And listen, God has the authority over language. He creates it. It isn't hard to run back to Babel and go, okay, God says, you want to you turn from me? I'll just change your language. He does that, right? Go back and read Babel. You just go, who would have thought of that? The creator of language. That's who did it. And so we marvel at these things. And notice that he is speaking the power of the gospel through these apostles in every language that was there. And notice the list that I read to you. Each person hearing this. And all this is prior to the completion of the Bible. So this is true tongues. This is true tongues. Um, it cannot be disconnected to the plan of salvation, right? It, every time we see this, it's connected to the gospel preaching, not to some word from God, and I have something that nobody else understands. Now, I just came from Egypt, and there I preached many times with a translator. I, I, I am not fluent in Arabic. I can say shukan. I said that a thousand times, and thank you. That's about my extent. I was desperate for my translator, another pastor, to, to take what I was teaching from the Bible, to speak it, to hear it, to translate it in his mind, and speak it in Arabic to these brothers and sisters in Egypt. And I'm so grateful for that. I was not using some other wild language, and he was trying to interpret that and make up something to go along, right? It was real truth. It was from God's Word. I was speaking in English. He was speaking it in Arabic. And the people were blessed as they heard God's word taught. I, I, I love this because it, it teaches me that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Not every unknown spiritual angelic language. Every tongue, every dialect will before God worshiping him, praising him. And so we, we have to stay in the text. We have to I translate this this way. We're going to work much harder on this when we get to chapter 14. Um, uh, and, and so we'll, we'll skip down to verse 11 here. Notice verse 11. We'll keep going here. But one of the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Well, I love this verse, and you'll notice this phrase. He keeps using over and over the same Spirit. And why does he do that? Why, did, why is he doing that? Because they were of different spirits, Right? There's the spirit of Paul and the spirit of Paulos and the spirit of Christ and the spirit of this and that, and they were all fractured. Paul keeps saying over and over, the same spirit, the same spirit, because the spirit is about unity. And they were not unified. And you notice that he's marking this over and over because God brings people together unlike the factions that were dividing people. Notice he says in verse 11, works all these things. This is what the spirit does. He takes our different gifts... He takes our different abilities, the things that he's given us, and he works all those things together for the glory of God and for our good. This is why he gives us these gifts. And notice that the Spirit sovereignly distributes these. Look at them. Look in this verse. The Spirit, and, and I add this word, sovereignly is distributing each one, each individual, that's you and me, as he wills. So if you don't like your gift you got a problem with somebody else, right? God gives you gifts. The Spirit of God says, I endow this person, I grant this person this 
gift that he gives. You'll notice that we see that all of these gifts are working together. This distributing of these gifts, all individually, as he purposes, as he wills, is his perfect will to bring these things about. I love this gracious operation of the Holy Spirit here. He knows how to unite us through our gifts, not separate us. When I get out and I cruise around the world and do things, some of the things I do, it's not hard to see where the charismatic world and some of the crazy things that have spread across um, our nations around this world, they are not unified. In fact, there's all kinds of problems in their church. And that's, but that's not the Spirit. The Spirit takes our gifts to unique. So if we have a problem in here and our gifts are clashing, we'll know that's not the gift of the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit is to bring us together, at least not exercising those things right. Look at our second thought this morning. The church is identified as the incarnate body of Christ. The church is identified as the incarnate body of Christ, verses 12 and 13. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, listen to this phrase, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized, identified, immersed into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, I, I love thinking of the beauty and the theological understanding of this verse, right? You, you, you hear the equality, right? There's equality in this verse. There's not greater gifts. There's not lesser gifts. There's, there's equality there. There's unity in this verse. You can hear it, don't you? There's oneness, a body of Christ, one body that works together. That's what God has designed for the church. That's what God's designed for marriage. This is God's design. Now, now think about this for just a moment with me. And I think this is key. When Christ steps out of heaven, he becomes incarnate, right? So he adds flesh to his deity, right? And he becomes how many bodies? One, right? He becomes one body. And, and he fulfills the plan of God by bodily dying on the cross, bodily being resurrected, bodily ascending to the right hand of the Father. So everything's done bodily. Christ was here bodily. He wasn't here in spirit or some kind of crazy thing that a lot of the Orthodox churches lost their way in. Um, he's here bodily, and all this happens bodily. But now, now think about this, Christ is incarnate in the body of Christ. And this is what Paul's trying to teach us. He's ascended, he's at the right hand of the Father. Now we are his what? Visible body, aren't we? We are the hands and arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. This massive, diverse, but precious to the Father, this is the body of Christ. And Christ has now become incarnate through the church and the world. And this is why it's so important that we are not all sitting on our hands, letting one or two people exercise their gift. Because does that picture Christ properly? Was Christ handicapped when he was here? Well, no, in no way. You go, well, Scott, how do you know this? Well, one, the verse tells us this, right? It says, so also is Christ. So the verse tells us this is Christ. But Paul says this in many ways. You know these verses, Philippians 1.21. For to me to live is... That's pretty blatant, isn't it? To me to live is Christ. Isn't it? That, that should be... Uh, the, the statement of the church. For us to live is Christ. We are his hands, his feet, 
We are his mouth. We, we, we represent him. We're fully immersed in him. We're identified with him. He's everything to us. He's the head. See, that's what he's telling us. And we represent that. Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is who we are. We are in the incarnate Christ now in a sense, right? We're the body of Christ. And so the spirit of Christ has entered every believer through the spirit of God, right? When you got saved, the spirit entered you. The Bible often refers to the spirit as the spirit of Christ. And every believer is part of Christ now. And together we make up his body. That's the church. And the church has now become one body so also is Christ. I love that statement. I dwelt on that for so long thinking, wow, Lord, we are the body of Christ. How well are we representing the body of Christ today? Are we functioning with all the arms and legs and all the members? Is, are, are we picturing Christ or are we giving a false view of who he is? There are great challenges there, isn't there? Look at verse 13 with me again. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one Body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. Well, again, notice the one spirit. This is unity again. We got great terms in this verse, don't we? Baptized, identified, fully immersed. You're not partly in Christ if you got saved. You're fully in Christ. It means you don't have a foot in the world and a foot in Jesus. You're either in him or you're not. And he's either in you or he's not. There's, there's a clear distinction here, isn't this? In the mark of the church is Christ is in us. And we represent him here. I love these terminologies. Notice the diversity here. Extreme diversity. Look at this. Jews and Gentiles. I just came from a land of what they would call Christians and Muslims. Just came from a land of it. It's amazing. Uh, there, there is just a line drawn in the sand between them, what they believe, how they worship, how they're married, how they conduct themselves, what they eat, and what they do. I mean, just an incredible line. The Bible says when you're in Christ, there's no division. And that's why I love looking out at this diverse body of Christ. And I love being overseas and seeing the body of Christ speaking Arabic, speaking Tagalog, speaking Spanish or whatever the language may be, we are the body of Christ, and there's such great diversity to this, and yet equality. This sounds much like Galatians 3.28. Paul said there, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. That's our position. When you stand in front of people who don't understand one word that falls out of your mouth, and you're dependent on Pastor Sadek, who was my translator, to hear. And I speak these words in English, and they just look at me. And then he says, and they go, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I do? That's the body of Christ. I'm part of them. They live on the other side of the world, eat really different food, live in a very, very poor community. But those are my brothers and sisters. And I love them. And I'm one with them. And I'm here to exercise my gift to help them encourage to exercise their gift. And I'm here to do that today with you. Let's not be a handicapped church. Let's, let's not be limping around because four people in a church this size are exercising their gift. What's your gift? Are you serving the Lord? Jesus said the night before his death, John 14, 16 through 17, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. 
I love that verse. Isn't that Jesus so concerned about the body of Christ? They're, they're going, oh, Jesus, you're going to leave. Look, I, I, I'm going to ask the Father. And the Father will give you a helper. And he will come and he will unite you. And he will take the things that I have said and he will plant them deeply in your heart. And he will bring you together and you will live as one. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying in these passages. But think about the contrast. Here Paul's saying one spirit, unity, but yet the church in Corinth is doing everything on their own. There are all these different spirits, right? Right, oh, I'm the spirit of knowledge. You know, I've been hanging around these guys with, you know, Plato. The church is fractured. They got people suing each other. They got immorality going into the church. They're so, they're so far apart from what God wanted, and Paul is trying to bring them back to the true spirit and what he was doing. The Holy Spirit always spotlights Christ in his word, brothers and sisters. That's what he does. And he draws us together. Well, number three here, the spirit-inspired word picture of the body of Christ. I, I love this section here. What time is it? Okay, I got a little bit here. I'm, look, I'm just speaking overseas where people have nothing else to do, so hang with me. We could go to about two today. Are you guys all right with that? Okay. Hang on. No, I promise. We'll get done here. A spirit-inspired word picture of the body of Christ. Uh, look, a non... I've said this many times at this church and throughout my ministry. Uh, a, a church that is not functioning with its gifts that exalt Christ and his word, that unify one, one another together under the headship of Jesus Christ is a handicapped church. And I've said this, look, we're going to go out there and paint every spot blue until you start serving. I'm not kidding. Because that's what a church is, right, that doesn't serve. Where, where there's a, just a handful of people that are doing all the serving, you have a handicapped church, Right? If I lop your hand off, right, you're going to get a blue tag and get to park in a blue spot. You're handicapped, aren't you? And so here we begin to realize that was the problem in Corinth. Their pride had led them to factions. Their factions had led them to the abuse of gifts. Now they're not unified. They're disunified. There's division within there. And Paul's going to give them a word picture here of something they would see very clearly as they just look at their own body parts to realize what God intended. Look at verse 14 with me. For the body is not one member, but many. That is not how they were tackling things. The body cannot exist outside of its other parts, right? It's no longer the body. Each part has a responsibility. I'm really glad some of these things work well, right? And some of you who have struggled or, or strokes or have, have not had those abilities, you know it more than we do, Right? You know how difficult it is sometimes if a body part's not working right. And, and Paul's trying to give them this clear word picture of these things. And, and think about this. No two members are exactly the same. You ever heard the saying that a guy's got two left feet because he can't dance? Well, I got thinking about that. I'm really glad I have a right and a left. And I don't think I'm a very good dancer, but... I don't think I'd want to walk around on this earth with two left feet. I think I would fall over one way or the other. And though they look a lot alike, when you look down there at them, they really play a different role, don't they? Such an important thing. And there's this simple instruction Paul is trying to get across to the church 
that the body functions with its potentials, with its diversity that God gave it, so that it'll be one. It's so obvious, isn't it? Now, look, look at the word picture he gives in verse 15. If the foot says, because I'm not the hand, I'm not part of the body, and if it's not for this reason, lest any part of the body. It is not for this reason, lest any part of the body. So the obvious principle is that no member can remove itself from the human body by complaining and not appreciating its own importance. Right? I think that's what he's saying. Without its function carried out, the body is handicapped. This becomes a problem, right? If the foot compares itself to the complexity of the hand and starts to be jealous of what the hand can do, you're going to have all kinds of problems, aren't you? See, envy starts to set in. Now we start to think about the church. Envy starts to set in. False thinking that I'm not needed. I don't belong here. I'm just a foot and everybody stands on me. And you know what they do? They they won't sit down, work through those things. They walk out the door and they don't come back. I'm just a foot. I'm down here dealing with toe jam all the time. (laughs) I, I don't think it's too difficult for you and I to make application here. Every member is important. Whether you are being stood on or you carry the bling. Every member is important. And without it, you are handicapped. And I'm, uh, I, I, I can't drive this point home enough because it's so practical. I, I just thought about the sermon today. Study a lot of hours get ready for this. But if you don't show up, it's pretty lonely in here. I did that for a while during COVID. If that booth isn't up there running the way it runs, you don't hear it and they don't hear it online. If secretaries aren't here to print notes and take care of things, um, if they're not little people holding babies back there, I mean, just think about all that it takes place for me to exercise my gift up here that it takes place in this congregation for us to do what we do here today. And yet someone will say, well, I'm just a foot. I'm just being stood on all the time. Well, brother, sister, God sees you as so much greater than that. So I think Paul's inspired message here is that every member is important no matter how inconspicuous they may be. So many times I have seen churches handicapped. Uh, I see it around the world. I see them leaning on one person, leaning on the abilities of one person, and they they don't get to be used around the world. I, I said seven years ago when I came here, I said, I want to win the world for Christ. I, I told you that. I looked at, we looked at a lot of churches, but we wanted somewhere where we could run, where seminaries could be planted and Bible schools and, and ministries, and there was people that could teach, and, and we, could, we could get around the world and help train people to love Jesus and his word. That's what I told you I wanted to do. And we're doing those things by God's grace. But it's not because you got one guy who's able to do all this. God allows me to go do those things because you have men who can fill this pulpit. You can have counseling that's going on. You can have training that's happening. All things keep going while somebody goes out and does that and returns back. It's just a function of the body. And you're here and you're giving and you're serving and you're meeting needs and you're calling up somebody whose roof blew off or whatever and you're, you're serving the Lord through serving one another. See, this is what Paul has in mind. And he reminds you in verse 11, look, 
I distribute these gifts. Verse 18, he says he places the members, each one of them, in the body. He has a role for you. Are you fulfilling that? Quickly, look at verse 16 with me. And if the ear says, because I'm not the eye, I'm not part of the body. And it is not for this reason any less part of the body. Well, here Paul's teaching the same truth, but changes body parts, right? The ear's now the complainer. Again, think, self-righteousness in Corinth had caused their focus to turn from, to, from, turn from internal to external. And I think what Paul's doing to these simple, in, simple teachings of body parts here is he's showing the shallowness of the Corinth church. We are so attracted to beauty versus function. You know, ear... I mean, some of you hang some earrings on them to make them look good, but really they're just a big lump of cartilage. They're really not that attractive. As we get older, they sag. But the eye, ooh, I can see your sparkling from where I'm at. Some of you paint them. See, Paul's showing the shallowness of what can happen. You may not be the eye of the church. You may just be cartilage be really good cartilage. See, he's showing that this is where it gets. When you get, when you get caught up into factions, when you get caught up in, well, I just want my needs met. What can the church give me? Sounds like our nation. According to the election. But when you get caught up in that, I think he's showing, look how shallow. I I don't know if you've ever played games with your kids and said, well, if you had to lose one thing or the other, would you lose sight or would you lose hearing? And you'll hear them kind of discuss those things, right? You've had those discussions. Then you hear someone like Fanny Crosby said, she said, I, they, someone asked her if she could receive her sight. What would she give for that? She got, I got nothing. I would never want my sight back because I'd never see the glory of Jesus the way I see him in my infirmity. See, I think what Paul's doing is he's trying to help them realize that their factions have caused a self-righteous behavior. It's brought selfishness to the forefront. They're self-centered in the church, and now they're rejecting the apostle who's been bringing direct revelation from God to them. And it's a mess. Look at verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? This is just simple, isn't it? If the whole body were hearing, where would be the sense of smell? Here again, Paul is just driving home his point that no matter how important the function of one member may be, the normal body cannot function as God intended when we leave out certain faculties. What are you? Have you I hope you're thinking in the sermon, you're not just being entertained by me in some way. You're thinking, what is, who am I? What, what body part do I represent of the incarnate Christ in this world? What am I doing? What, what has God endowed me? The Bible, you know it. The Bible says God, the Spirit endows, manifests, gives. It's passive. He gives the gifts to each believer. I hope we're thinking through these things. Look, no matter how indispensable a Christian's gift is, it cannot function as a maverick. That's what the Bible's teaching here. We, we see this. You can ask our other pastors. People will come and say, well, you know, I've never really been involved with church I, I just don't think, you know, I need the church. I mean, we look at them, we don't say this, but we go, you're a fool. You're actually 100% dead wrong, according to the Scripture. 
a simple illustration that your children could understand, right, as they read this little text right here, going, well, the ear is important. Don't underestimate the importance of your gift. The church often does not move forward. Listen to this. The church does not win the world for Christ because many people are not serving with their gifts. We get so bogged down dealing with other things because we're overloaded and we don't move forward. Paul does not want this to happen to Corinth and I don't want this to happen to this church. And so we should understand our functions. We should not be jealous of other gifts that God's given other people. Verse 18 but God, but now God has placed, key word there, the members, each one of them in the body, look at this, just as he desires. Well, Paul brings God to the center of the conversation, doesn't he, here in this verse. God's, he, he didn't make a mold, like one mold of us. Uh, we're creating his image, don't, that's not what I'm talking about. He doesn't just stamp out everybody to be preachers or everybody to be deacons or servants or whatever. He, he, he doesn't do that. He, he, he's diverse in the way he created the human body even, right? It isn't hard to look at Adam and Eve and see their gender difference, to see the different body parts that he gave them, to function, to reproduce, to do all the things that God designed them for. We look at that closely and go, that's a picture of the church. It takes hearing and smelling and seeing and speaking and feeling and walking and and throwing in all the things that our body parts do to make it function. Notice in this verse, and don't miss this important word, placed. Placed. God has placed the members. Well, I don't like my place. Well, you better take that up with God. Because if you don't like your place, you're saying God made a mistake. Isn't this what the gender world is saying right now? But look, and it's easy to get on that, right, as a conservative Bible-teaching church. But what about our church? Are you serving? Do you, do you realize that God called you to be a faithful member of this church? A serving, giving, partaking, running with all arms swinging, legs running church? Or are we packing you? What are you? And see, Paul's challenging us. Notice he uses the phrase, each one of them. See, this rejects the wrong thinking that there's some kind of less important members here. Each one is where God specifically placed that member. Are you fulfilling that ordained role? Look at verse 19. If they were one member, where would the body be? What a great question. No body, no diversity. And I think, I think this is a problem in churches. I, I get to preach at pastor conferences, and I challenge pastors all the time. I said, do you feel like your church are a good sermon listeners? And most of them in our circle will say, yeah, we have a great sermon listening church. I'll say, do they disciple one another? And they go, no, we're not good disciplers. We can't get discipleship going. Do they serve one another? Well, we try. See, see that's, that's what we talk about, handicap. We, we're not a sermon-listening church. We take the sermons, learn from God's Word, and we live that out as the incarnate body of Christ, as a working member of the body of Christ, and we serve and, and we reflect who He is. And yet, if only a few 
members of the body are doing it, we really, I hate to say this, we've really shown a very poor view of Jesus. That's not who he is. And so Paul's argument shows the absurdity of rejecting God's design for diversity here. And this should, listen, this should cause every Christian to pursue their God-given gifts. Finally, look at verse 20 with me. But now there are many members, but one body. The diversity of God, diversity with God's glorifying unit is Paul's point here. He, diversity brings unity if it's all pointed towards Christ. And this verse is really a summary of this whole paragraph here in God causes diversity and plurality to bring him glory. And I think each one of us serve a role in the unique gifting that the Spirit has given us. And, and as pastors, you know, one of our jobs is to put a boot in your rear end. Sometimes. I say that nicely. I do wear boots, so. Time to get going. T- time to start serving. The Lord's going to return. Will he find you with your wicks trimmed and your oil ready, ready to serve, shining brightly who he is, or are you a complaining member that doesn't want to be a part of the body? See, this is challenging, isn't it? I am so out of time. I wrote point four, and I'm going to get to this next week, and it'll tie in good with next week. And what what I did in point four is I, I wrote down seven things to help you discover what your gift is and if you're using it for the glory of God. Uh, I'm going to do that next week, I promise. I got it right here on my notes. I just ran out of time. I was afraid of that. Um, sorry. We'll get to that next week. Don't want to miss, okay? Because I, I really want to challenge you with this. And they're simple. There's sim- seven things to think through. How, what is my gift? And how am I using it? Okay? We're going to work on that next week. Father, we thank you for this passage. It's challenging, Lord. It's very challenging to us. Um, we, we can find ourselves uh, not active in this incarnate body of Christ here on earth because we're consumed with our problems. We're consumed with the world and what it's going and what it's doing. And yet the Bible tells us clearly that the Spirit Himself, the Spirit of God, has uniquely gifted each member, each believer in this congregation with gifts to glorify God and to create unity. And Lord, we see that working when we all serve you right. We see Christ being exalted. We see great love in this church. We see love for believers around the world. We see it. But we also see it when factions happen. We also see it when selfishness becomes a part of a growing part within the church, Lord. And so, Father, we want you to help us examine ourselves this week. Do we know what our gift is? Are we accepting what you chose for us, the perfect God chose? Are we accepting that gift? And are we using it for your glory and for the common good? Lord, help us as we examine these things. Thank you for Riverbend. I am grateful for so many who do serve you, Lord. And the abilities and the things you're letting us do from the training of men and women here to around the world, I would praise you for that, Lord. We could not do that on our own. Thank you for gifting us, Lord. Help us to be good stewards of these things. We pray this in Jesus' name.